this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Welcome to New Books and Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Sam Peckinpah was both controversial and groundbreaking in his film career, fighting regularly with studios to protect his vision. He was also one of the last great directors of Westerns. Film editor and academic Paul Sedor presents an in-depth study of one of Peckinpah's later films in his book, The Authentic Death and Contentious Afterlife of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, the untold story of Peckinpah's last Western film. The book was published in 2015 by Northwestern University Press. In my interview, Paul describes the development of the original story, discusses the various versions of the film, and details some of the many aspects of the film that make it still relevant. Welcome to Paul Sedor. Hi, Paul. How are you? Very well, Joel. How are you? <laughs> uh, not bad. I know you and I have had a, I don't want to call it phone tag because we've never actually talked till today, but I'm glad to finally get a chance to talk to you. As I just mentioned to you a minute ago, this is, I don't know that much about Sam Peckinpah except for his reputation. And yet I found this book to be very enjoyable to read and a lot of great information. And anybody that has interest in film, particularly that wants to know the background of a particular film in this case, although you talk a lot about Peckinpah's career as well, this is a great book to learn a little bit of background about how, particularly when he was making films, what it was like having to work in Hollywood in the systems that he was forced to work in. So I really appreciate you talking to me today. My pleasure. Well, you're definitely the winner of the longest book title contest as well. Uh, but seriously, you also qualify as a Sam Peckinpah scholar. And your book presented a great study of one of his more controversial films, of a career that was full of controversy. But let's start with some background. You have an interesting dual history with both Hollywood and academic credentials. So let's first talk about your career as a film editor and and, 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 and other a producer, and then what led you into, into an academic life? Well, actually, the academic life long preceded. Oh, wow. I didn't the, even know that. Life, it was the other way around. I mean, I was you know, I was a literature major in college. I loved films, movies. Um, I reviewed movies when I was in college. And, you know, as I say in the book and have said many times, you know, I, I saw The Wild Bunch in 1969 and I felt what Emily Dickinson said, you know, you're in the presence of poetry when you feel the top of your head coming off. I just knew that I wanted to write about this director and, um, uh, um, additional subsequent acquaintance with the rest of his work only reaffirmed that. And, and so I ultimately went on to get a, uh, a doctorate in, um, in American studies because I wanted to get a better, wanted to get a better education than I had at the time because I thought his work warranted it. And, you know, I, I specifically did not want to do it under the more narrow scope, if you will, of film studies, um, because I, I thought his work is most richly illuminated uh, across the much broader background of, of American culture, um, film, but but more specifically uh, literature uh, and, and and so forth. So that's you know that's my academic background, and I went to the University of Iowa, which had a wonderful American Studies department. They called it American Civilization, and I said I'm coming to write a book on Sam Peckinpah, <laughs> and so they they gave me a very nice NDA fellowship to come there. And well, five years later, I had written what turned out what were five chapters of my first book on on Peckinpah uh, called Peckinpah: The Western Films. Um, and uh, as a consequence of writing that, 
Well, let's see. I got my first job at the university, my first academic job at the University of Southern California in 1976, where Coincidentally, Peckinpah himself graduated with a with a degree in theater arts, a master's degree in theater arts in 1954. Um, and when I got out to USC, I I met Peckinpah because I needed a whole lot of information from him, particularly about the editing of his films, because he's often had such difficulty dealing with the front offices and getting the film out in the version. That, that he wanted, and um, so anyway, as a consequence, the uh, that I, I got what I needed, and the the first uh, book, Peckinpah: The Western Films, was published in 1980 by the University of Illinois Press, and it got very, very good reviews at the time. And it's still, I'm still proud to say, pleased to say that, despite the fact that there are well over 30 books on Peckinpah in print in several different languages, it is still widely regarded as the best critical study of his work, um, uh, even though it, it, it focuses only on the Western films. And I'm also proud and, and pleased to say that between it and the second edition, which was published in 1997, um, an expanded edition, um, it's never been out of print. You know, which is one of the nice things about publishing with university presses. Well, it must have also hit the right notes. (laughs) And then as a consequence of meeting some of the people Peckinpah worked with, particularly his editors, and one in particular, a man named Roger Spotswood, you know, when when I met Roger, he was wanting to direct films. He was wanting to move on from editing and wanting to direct films. And, you know, I wasn't so sure any longer that I wanted only an academic career. I mean, the, the, the writing on Peckinpah was a labor of love. And when I peered into my future and thought about, you know, the next logical thing would write about the other Western of the other films of Peckinpah. But then, you know, when you move beyond that, I thought to my, I'm, I'm just, I was trying to imagine myself writing academic articles <laughs> or that kind of thing. Whereas the, the one aspect of filmmaking that has keenly, keenly interested me was film editing. So one thing led to another. And, you know, several years later, I, I jumped ship and didn't look back for well over a quarter of a century when Chapman University was expanding its film program and they invited me to to head their graduate editing emphasis. So I, you know, in 2005, I went back into academia yet without giving up my my editing career. So I do both, which makes me very busy some of the time. And there's these last five years, very, very busy indeed because I've edited films. I, I teach at Chapman full-time, and I, uh, I wrote this book. So. <laughs> yeah, I was looking through the list of some of the films you uh, edited, and I must admit one of them sort of jumped out at me, and that's Major League Two because I was, I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio, so one in those two films, Major League and Major League Two, have a particular interest to me, but uh, I see that was one of the ones that you worked on. But, of course, you worked on a number of quite well-regarded films as well. Well, Major League Two was directed by David Ward, who written and directed by David Ward, who is a colleague of mine at Chapman. We joined the the Chapman faculty together, um, and uh, the first film I did for David was the program. And you know, before that, I had done some films for I had done White Men Can't Jump for Ron Shelton, <laughs> for whom I've edited most of my films. Uh, so I mean, it's kind of ironic that I wound up editing so many sports films. I mean, you know, White Men Can't Jump is generally regarded as the best basketball movie ever made. Um, uh, the program is generally regarded as the best football movie ever made. And Tin uh, Cup's not too bad for golf. And and Tin Cup has, of course, become iconic in the golf world and is the best golf movie ever made. So, uh, And yet I don't play any of those sports. <laughs> I mean, in the midst of time, I played football in high school. But I don't play any of those sports, and I'm often fond of saying about white men can't jump in a basketball. You could stage a pick in front of me right now, and I wouldn't know what you did. <laughs> but um, 
I think Ron changed only one take on me throughout all of, of White Men Can't Jump. <laughs> because, you know, I mean, I follow the story. You, 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 you follow the story and let the sports take care of itself. I mean, Ron knows sports. David knows sports. If there's anything completely wrong, they would say, well, Paul, you should do this. But it hardly ever happened. I mean, you know, it was... So they were, they, 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 were, they were great fun films to do, and they're wonderful people to collaborate with. Well, any sporting event, any sport, even any game has actually got a storyline to it. And yeah. so, because it's got a beginning and an end. So obviously you can create a story out of any sporting event. So that actually fits in quite well in the middle of any kind of film. So I can see where just because you didn't know that much about the particular sport didn't mean that it wouldn't fit into traditional storytelling. Yes, exactly. Did your experience in editing help you then you you actually wrote about Peck and Paul before you started doing professional editing but then you came back and continued work on Peck and Paul after you did more you know after you worked in the in the uh, business so to speak so i suspect that also amplified your feelings about Peck and Paul's work well the thing is that you know with with Peck and Paul both i mean i happen to think i personally believe that he was he had the greatest editorial imagination, film editorial imagination of any director who ever lived. You just have to look at the wild bunch or straw dogs to see that. And in saying this, believe me, I am by no means forgetting about Eisenstein and Griffith and Hitchcock um, and, and some other logical candidates. But I think Peckinpah really, really superseded them all. And writing about Peck and Paul could only intensify that that interest um, and, and feeling for that because you have to deal with that when you're writing about when you're writing about his work and because a lot of my writing in in the Western Films book is about formal analysis and thematic analysis of his work. You have to deal with the effects of the editing. Additionally because he has had such difficulty bringing his films to market in versions as he wanted, you are dealing with issues of editing as well. So from a certain point of view, I was already primed. I'm fond of saying, somebody once said, you know, I mean, you're only an assistant for for one film. How did you do this? And I said, well, I mean, I, I like to think, given my work, that I think it's evident I have a certain gift and talent for it. But also, you know, if you're studying Peckinpah for seven or eight years and you don't learn something about editing, then you ought to be in another line of work. Right. Um, and and, I, and I'm fond of saying that, that I already knew how I wanted to cut film, just give me the film to cut. And I was very lucky because Roger Spotswood, the first director I ever worked for, you know, Roger was... Uh, very much a, a great, well, he worked with Peckinpah, obviously, did three films with him, and he learned a great deal. I mean, he shot a lot of coverage, as Peckinpah did. Ron Shelton is crazy about Peckinpah's work, and Ron shoots a lot of coverage. So I, and, you know, the action sequences, uh, the use of slow motion and all, and all that, I mean, a lot of that was simply conditioned by, you know, what I knew about Sam's work, and from Sam's work and so forth, and just itching to be able to do it. Plus, the other big thing I learned from Sam, from, from Peckinpah's work, is I'll sometimes call him from time to time Sam. That's fine. We did know each other. Uh, we met, and that's what we called each other by our first names and so forth. And I mean, we did not socialize together, but we did know each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the thing that always impressed me, even more than the action editing in Peck and Paws films, and I could talk more about that, but I was just always struck by the performances in his films. You know, um, there is such an organic sense of continuity. You know, one of the big differences between a performance in a theater and a performance in film is the performance in the theater, you see the entire arc of the performance before you in real time. Whereas in films, you know, films are shot. You have master shots, you have medium masters, 
uh, you have close-ups, you have over-the-shoulders, you have medium close-ups, two shots. You know, you 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 basically build a performance. And you know, some directors will shoot in longer t- shoot to be cut in longer takes. But Sam very very much liked to use his coverage. And so what I learned a lot about Sam was how you build a performance in the editing room and preserve an organic, seamless continuity of mood or emotion, whether it should be continuous or whether it should be disruptive and and so forth. And that's, that's one of the, I would say, in fact, I learned more about that from watching Sam's films even than I did about action editing. I was going to ask you, that was sort of leads right into the next thing I was going to ask you about. What kind of techniques did he use that have now become so well-known? And, and I mean, most people who have watched his films probably know that, but he obviously has, he's a ma- as you pointed out, he's a major influence on a lot of people. So, I... I would actually make the argument, and I have made the argument, that The Wild Bunch is the most influential film about the last 50 years. Um, if for no other reason than just looking at action films, you can't look at action films and not see Peckinpah's influence. I mean, it is pervasive, the combination of slow motion and fast cutting, the way violence is depicted. I mean, I, I think Sometimes this influence has been baneful. You know, you you watch a lot of the stuff on TV and the on on you know the the HBO, for instance, or at the movies. The trafficking in gore, the explicitness of the violence is is. I mean, to me, it's something that I don't even like to watch very much. I usually, it's too explicit. I just turn my head away. And Peckinpah used to say, if I'm so bloody, I drive people out of the theaters, then I've failed. And he also said, you know, the thing that sometimes people don't like about my films is that they watch. They want to turn their heads away, but they don't. They watch, and that makes them angry. That's part of what makes them so powerful. And a lot of, a lot of the people who have come after Peckinpah haven't learned that part of it. They're just too explicit. Plus, they also just go on too long. I mean, last year, for example, there was, there was an interesting movie, and in many respects a good one, called Fury, which was about the tank, the, the tank crew. Mm-hmm. And it was obviously massively influenced by Peckinpah. There are, there are shots that are direct quotations out of his films, and of course the final setup, four men trapped in a tank in a machine gun surrounded by a whole army. But the, the trouble is, the trouble is, you know, I want to say that in The Wild Bunch, the final battle only seems to go on for an eternity. It, it climaxes and ends just when it should, and that's where its intensity comes from. Whereas in The Fury, the effect ultimately becomes numbing and ludicrous. And one of the things that a lot of people haven't learned from Peckinpah is how beautifully judged his climaxes were. I mean, he knew that after a certain point, you simply lose the capacity for response. You become numb. And he was, he was, he, he just had a rare, rare gift for knowing how far he could go when you pull back. His sense of dynamics and tone is, is I think, peerless. Um, but you asked me about techniques. There is one thing that Peckinpah was responsible for that very, very few filmmakers are ever responsible for is that he added something to basic filmmaking vocabulary. And that was the, that was the way you could use slow motion to fit into what I call the ongoingness of filmic narrative. I, I, I wish I could... I had a more elegant way of saying it, but I, I, I can't think of one, Joel. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's very, one of the things that Peckinpah used to say to his editors was, you know, you use slow motion only when something happens so fast that you can't see it. Now, he used slow motion for many other reasons than that, but that was a kind of interesting one because he wanted to try to freeze certain images in your mind so that, that, that you, would, you would retain what those things looked like. And so he developed this method of using a slow motion piece for a very short 
a relatively short period of time inside a larger arc of movement. And that's sometimes one of the reasons why his violence can be so unsettling, because it seeps into you almost at a subliminal level. It's not really subliminal, but it seeps into you as a subliminal level. And Peckinpah rarely ever used extended pieces of slow motion that just go on and on forever. I mean, he had this very real gift. It's like you glimpse something and it stays with you. But the narrative is not disrupted. The through line is not disrupted. That's one of the things he added to to basic filmmaking vocabulary. And, you know, one of the ways you know his influence has been so pervasive is you see it in the work of filmmakers who don't even know, who don't even know that they're being influenced by Peckinpah. You know, I was at a, at a film festival in the late 90s, and I saw this very interesting little film by a filmmaker in which, you know, he, in, in a longer course of action, he cut in a very, very brief kind of insert of a dancer, you know, doing a, doing a leap, and he just held the, um, the, the, the slow motion for, it just put that one piece in for slow motion. It was very much like Peckinpah. And he told me he'd never even heard of Peckinpah. I sort of find this hard to believe, but let that pass. But, but he told me he had never even heard of Peckinpah, yet there was the clear influence. Why? Well, because the influence is like five or six layers removed or deep. Mm-hmm. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. It's like, it's like people are writing like Hem- people continue to write to some extent like Hemingway, even if they've never read Hemingway. Because, because they've read the people who were af- affected yes, by because- Hemingway directly, and so you're second, third degree away. Yes, and that and that mode of writing has has moved has just become one pervasive mode of of writing, and there are very very few filmmakers. I mean. You know, the use of jump cuts, for example, you might see from the French New Wave and so forth and some of the Godardian techniques, but I've seen very, very little that has, well, nothing quite that has entered the basic language of film the way that contribution by Peckinpah has. Um, And, you know, you were seeing it even in his own time. You know, I remember I was once at a when I was at the University of Iowa, Robert Altman came out there and, and McCabe and Mrs. Miller had just come out and he, he said, you know, he said, you know, well, people ask me why I use slow motion in, in McCabe and Mrs. Miller. You're trying to be like Peckinpah. And I said, no, it's just because I felt it. Well, nobody asked him if he was trying to be like Peckinpah. So obviously he couldn't resist trying to do what Peckinpah does. Kubrick couldn't resist it in, in, in A Clockwork Orange and, and so forth. And by the time, you know, Ron came along to do White Men Can't Jump, for example, you know, that's, that's just the way you did things. Plus sports is always in slow motion. So um, uh, anyhow, um, I, we've kind of, range so far. I'm not sure what your question was. <laughs> no, you pretty much did it. I, I was, I, I really wanted to know why, you know, what were the parts of his work that is considered to be still a major part of filmmaking? And I think he did a great job of uh, presenting yeah. that theme. Yeah. And then the other things, the, the other aspects of it are conceptually, thematically, that sort of stuff. I mean, you have a whole subsequent generation or two of filmmakers after Peckinpah who either unconsciously or more most of the time actually quite self-consciously admit, embrace his influence and say what it is and, and, and that has been pervasive, not just in not just in subsequent Westerns that are that are so I mean I, I frankly think probably the only person who makes Westerns who really probably hasn't been much influenced by by Peck and Paul is Eastwood, mm-hmm. um, who who has kind of gone, you know, Eastwood seems to be much more in, much more influenced by John Sturge's mode of, of filmmaking than 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 he is by 
you know, than he is by Peckinpah. Um, but, but practically everybody else, I mean, Walter Hill, um, uh, the Cohen brothers, um, you know, people, uh, Tommy Lee Jones in, in, in all three films. I mean, the three films that Tommy Lee Jones directed are all Westerns. And, and everybody has evoked the name of Peckinpah when that, you know, when, you know, when that, when, when, when those films came, came out. And of course the big one, uh, and in my opinion, the best one was of course, um, Catherine Bigelow in the Hurt Locker, um, you know, where she does, you know, she talks about, she's, she was an art major in New York in, when was it, the 80s or something like that? And one night she saw The Wild Bunch and she said that was a paradigm shift for me. So moving, then then obviously, as you've just brought up, Peckinpah was known for a great deal for his Westerns. And of course, he actually, that's where he came into the business, so to speak, as a writer of Westerns in television. That's true, yes. It goes all the way back to to, to television. And you know his his television western work is still too little shown. I mean, it's a shame with with all. Forgive the expression. It's a shame with all with all the crap from early TV and everything else that is released on DVD and so forth. You still don't have his westerner episodes and some other things. Just recently, thanks to to the the Twilight Time Blu-ray releases, um, Nick Redman and Brian Jameson's company. We've just recently had a decent version of Noon Wine um, come out, but we're still hoping that the episodes of The Westerner can come out because that's where Peckinpah's, that, that's where Peckinpah really got his start. That and, you know, as I say and discovered in the new book, his screenplay to, you know, to the authentic death of, uh, of Henry Jones, the Charles Nider novel. Um, and then shortly after that, he started directing shows for The Rifleman and then his own series, The Westerner. And, you know, you can see the beginnings, um, you can see the beginnings of his thematic preoccupations there and, and even, even a lot, even some of his stylistic work. So speaking, since you brought it, since this can lead into, you know, from our discussion into the book itself, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, as you just mentioned, the story, the basic concept of the story had, was an important aspect of his career going way back. Let me, let me start with something, Joel, since you happened to mention it at the beginning, and people are often amused by this, the longest title, one of the longest titles you've, you've ever read and so forth. That was, of course, deliberate. Right. Uh, uh, it was deliberate in the sense that um, I happen to be very fond of allusions in titles anyway. I mean, if you read my, my first book and, and the second edition of it, you'll see that a number of the titles are allusions to other titles, like Men Without Women, the title of the chapter in The Wild Bunch. That's an allusion to a Hemingway short story, etc. But, um, but, you know, the, the title of Garrett's book, the book that Garrett wrote after he a year after he killed Billy the Kid is the, the short version of the title is the authentic death of Billy or the authentic life of Billy the Kid, um, and then the actual title goes on for virtually a paragraph after that. A true and faithful narrative, you know, the noted desperado of the Southwest. So, and then Charles Snyder titled his novel, which was based on his research into the history and the, and, and the legend, The Authentic Death of Henry Jones. So I could allude to both titles in The Authentic Death and Contentious Afterlife of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, and the subtitle, The Untold Story of Peckinpah's Last Western Films, because, and I, I sort of deliberately wanted to evoke the feeling, the sense of, uh, you know, an old-fashioned Western pulp history or novel. So that's why that that's the reason why the title is is what it is, right? Because I think you even the book even has a, a picture or a photo of the title page of the original book, and that full yeah, so title is there of Garrett's book. Yeah, there, there's the whole picture of the title page there, and uh, and you can see the whole long long title. And this is what they did in those days. And I mean, 
obviously all of this stuff was completely outrageous and, you know, at least 50% of the history this is made up as fiction anyway, yet they always put words like authentic and faithful and true. <laughs> yeah, and, you're right. I'm looking at it in the book now, and you're right. It go, It's one, two, three, four, <laughs> five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten lines, basically, oh, the way. Funny. It goes on forever, and so I just thought that was kind of nice, and then I was so thrilled because at, at Northwestern University Press, which, if you don't mind if I put in a plug-in for them, I mean, they're just was they were just a dream press to deal with, uh, and so forth. And they're one of the great university presses. But you know, this is one of the nice things about dealing with the university press is that they just they really care about you, the author, and the book. And I, I said, you know, I thought it might be fun to try to evoke the style of an old-fashioned Western novel and or history and that kind of thing. And they have this marvelous designer there named Marianne Jankowski, and, you know, we, we talked about it, and I showed her some stuff that I was kind of interested in, and then I said, you know, I have these three pictures of Peckinpah, James Coburn, and Chris Christopherson, who played Garrett and Dilly, respectively, and they're all in wardrobe from the movie, and I said, I would like these three photographs on the cover, if you would, with Peckinpah between them, because that's one of the themes of the book. And I think she just knocked the title and knocked the design right out of the park. Well, yeah, because it's got that old Western look to it even. So that's uh, it, it does fit into your overall theme there that you were trying to, to show. So obviously one of the other hallmarks of Peckinpah's career, and it, your book does a great job of of presenting this, is his continual battles with the studios or the producers in order to get the films made that he wanted to, the way he wanted. And of course he continually ran into problems with this. And of course, and one of the things you detail in a great amount is what he had to do that, that Pat Garrett and Billy, the kid as, as a movie was, was probably one of his worst experiences as far as getting a film made the way he wanted. How did he develop? Where did the, the screenplay that eventually became the film come from? Well, it depends on how you measure these things. Um, Sam himself wrote um, a screenplay, an adaptation of Charles Miter's novel, The Authentic Death of Henry Jones, which is a wonderful book. It's, I mean, Sam himself called it the best Western ever written. And I wouldn't, I don't know enough Westerns to make that global acclaim, but it's certainly one of the best. And he wrote a screenplay on that. He was he was hired to write a screenplay on that by Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando's company wanted Marlon to appear in a in, in a western. Um, and eventually, Peckinpah was fired. Stanley Kubrick was brought on to direct, and Kubrick didn't like the screenplay. So Brando fired Sam, and they brought in another author, and so on and so forth. And the final film, One-Eyed Jacks, which Peckinpah hates, uh, I mean, there's only, I think, one or two scenes of his left in the film. I personally think it's a much better film than Sam did, but that's another story. I mean, He had there, personal reasons, probably. There it would have ended, except that in 1969, Gordon Carroll, a producer had the idea of of taking the Western and using it as a kind of vehicle, if you will, to dramatize a certain self-destructive aspect of rock culture in the late 60s and early 70s. I mean, he was reacting, of course, to the deaths of the, the fairly dramatic deaths of Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin. Um, and, and so forth, and, and I thought it might be kind of interesting to, to make a Western in which you just suggested these parallels in the mode in the mode of a Western, and he was introduced to Wurlitzer, who was you know, a young novelist at the time without much reputation, but he had done a rewrite on a screenplay on a film called... Um, oh, come on, what, what, what's the name of the film? <laughs> the Monty Hellman film. Tulane Blackstock, yeah. you know, became, has since become quite a cult film. Well, 
he had already been researching materials on the screenplay of Billy the Kid, so uh, he just he he wrote the screenplay, and um, it was originally written for Monty Hellman, and then you know by the time it 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 went to a it was turned down over most places in town, though apparently Columbia was interested in doing it, but it found its way over to MGM. And they liked the idea, but they wouldn't approve Hellman. He, they just thought of him as a small pictures director, and it went to Peckinpah. And, you know, once Peckinpah was assigned, everybody was just, they, they couldn't have been happier because here you have the greatest director of Western since John Ford. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, thereafter you cast it and so on and so forth. But, that was about the last time that anybody, you know, was really working together on the project. It, it became a very, very contentious project early on. I mean, the studio, the studio kept wanting more action, yet wanting to take money out of the budget. Okay, right. had trouble casting it, um, and they finally wound up having a good cast, but they never really did get the Billy that they initially wanted, although Peckinpah was himself was very happy with Chris Christopherson. Um, Peckinpah himself was in very difficult times. I mean, he was drinking far more heavily than usual on the thing. The picture went over schedule and over budget. Some of that was owing to Sam's drinking, but I think most of it was not. I mean, there was inclement weather in Mexico. There was a horrible, deadly flu that ravaged Mexico and ravaged the company at the time. Um, And uh, there were equipment problems, um, camera problems that could have been avoided had there been what Peckinpah wanted, a, a Panavision repairman on the set. And the reality is that there was a lot of work on the script that was just never never properly completed and a long story behind that but some of that has to be laid at Sam's feet I mean I personally believe he contributed greatly to strengthening and enriching enriching the character of Garrett but at the same time he he stripped the character of Billy, and so the character of Billy never really emerges coherently um, in in the film. Uh, well, by the time you got into post, the post-production was far too short. I mean, it was insanely too short. And there was warring back and forth uh, about what version should be shown. Sam was very intransigent about his version, which had things in it that didn't work and was much too long. It wasn't previewing well. And eventually he just stopped working on it. I mean, the story was that the studio took it away from him. Well, that's that's true only in a very qualified sense. And I, a part of the reason why I wrote the book was to kind of to kind of try to suggest some sense of what really, really happened on it. I mean, the reality is that Peckinpah just remained intransigent for so long that once his second preview was done, the studio, I mean, the studio could just take it and do with it what they wanted. Um, And he refused to be cooperative in any way, which was a pity, because if he had stayed there, I think he could have gotten a good bit of what he wanted. And it was left to the editors, Roger Spotswood and Bob Wolf in particular, either to just leave with him and let James Aubrey, the studio head, and his studio editors chop up the film however they wanted, or they could do the job themselves. Um, being as close, as faithful to what Sam wanted and still come out with a coherent film, and they decided to do the latter. Um, I don't know if if that's 
answering your question. No, it is, because like I say, that's part of your first part of the book basically talks about the screenplay, but then the second part is when you start talking about the different versions of the film and some of the issues of the different versions and what happened as far as uh, some of these things that you're talking about. The upshot of it was that there are, there have been released five different versions of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid by my count. There was the first preview. There was the second preview a week later, which are close but not identical. Then there is the theatrical version, which was shorter than either of the previews, but in my opinion, overall, it is better edited. It's a bit tighter. it, 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 It is paced better. And the theatrical preview, the theatrical version, obviously was not the final edit. Was not back and pause. No, that was the, the, the that was it was the version that was released. And it's technically true that it is not Peck and Paw, but it was done by Peck and Paw's editors, and it's pretty consistent with Peck and Paw's style of editing. Um, then there was a television version that cut so much of the nudity and violence that in order to fill out the time for television, they had to go back and add some of the cut scenes back in. And then there was finally the 2005 special edition, which I was asked to prepare. Um, Warner Brothers, well, Nick Redman and Brian Jameson spearheaded a box set of Peckinpah's Western films. And taking his cue from something I wrote in the first edition of my my Peckinpah Western film study, where I said, you know, the only way you can get a clear sense of what Peckinpah might have had in mind was watch the theatrical, then watch it on TV, and in your mind's eye kind of edit some of the scenes in the television version back into the feature, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so forth. Well, Nick said, you know, well, Paul, why don't we just do that? And so I did. Um, and we thought that the, this is, I'm, I'm giving you now the, the bringing you up to date as to how this book came to be written in the first place. Um, we thought that everybody would be happy about this. And it came out, and oh my God, well, many people were. I mean, Chris Christopherson said it was the best version of the film he'd ever seen. Um, Peck and Puzz family members, to my knowledge, liked it. Um, uh, Several critics I know liked it. They thought it was, by and large, the best, most playable version of the film, and so forth. But, you know, we live in the age of the Internet, and the Internet, you know, has fans and, and, and enthusiasm, enthusiasm, and it was reviled. I mean, I finally got tired of reading it, and I particularly got tired of reading it because I was... Um, because I was accused of doing so many things I didn't do, for example, cutting this or trimming that. And I, I, as I say in the book, when I approached the project, I approached it in such a way that I would have to do the minimal editing necessary. But all I wanted to do was take out, to take a few of the scenes that were cut that Peck and Paul wanted in and incorporate them into the theatrical version and do a couple of other things, and that's what was done. Well, right, right. because it's not your film, it's his, and you were trying to recreate it as best as you could, so obviously you can't be accused of, if in the end all you were trying to do was to try to make his vision as possible, as, as well as you could. And part of the irony is, you know, part of the irony is that, you know, one of the things I didn't want to do is start re-editing the previews because, I mean, here's the conundrum you're kind of in if you want to get into the ethics of film restoration, which is the subtitle of an essay one of my critics wrote, I'm just not going to do him the justice of naming him by name. That's right. Any, uh, not the justice, but, of, but of, of flattering him by naming him um, by name. Anybody who is in the know about this will know who I'm talking about. I mean, he wrote an essay in which there are so many blatant inaccuracies. Um, chapter 8 in the book, by the way, is an answer to that essay. It's simply that I answer it by way of taking the substance of what he said without mentioning him by name. <laughs> I said, I, 
my books on Peckinpah tend to be around for a very long time, <laughs> and I didn't want him as a presence in it five years from now, <laughs> right? Especially to a book in a book I dedicated to my wife and daughter. But anyhow, um, I mean, for example, this the, the nonsense that Peckinpah was fired. He was not fired from the film. The reality is that he stopped working on it. He could have continued working on it if they wanted, and they would have they would have preferred that he do. I mean, it said that he was locked, he was barred from the lot. Again, nonsense. His office was on the lot. He came to it almost every day, maybe even every day. Okay. I mean, the reality is that that, that Sam was acting very, very self-destructively and often petulantly on on the film. And so far as I have been able to tell, none of the editors who were absolutely loyal to him, none of the editors can ever remember that he watched any version of the film all the way through. And we know this is the case because he, um, when he had a chance a year later to go back and cut it the way he wanted, he never did it, which is revealing in and of itself. That's number one. But number two, he he actually, there were scenes not in the film, in the previews, that he wanted in the previews, and he didn't realize that they were not in the previews because he never watched the previews all the way through. Mm-hmm. He was acting, I mean, he was really acting very very self-destructively, and I think it's probably because at some level he began to lose faith in the film, despite the fact that it was one of his most famous, uh, it, it became one of his most accomplished films, uneven, but a genuinely great film, and I think a masterpiece for all its problems. Anyhow, um, I just got so tired of reading about about what I suppose so-called dinner. I just stopped reading these sites and so forth. I mean, my friend Nick Redman said, Paul, don't read them. You're never going to win with these guys, etc., and so forth. So I stopped reading them. Well, cut to about not five years later. This is 2006, you know, three years later. Michael Bliss, who's written a good book on Peckinpah and a couple of anthologies, he was coming up with a new anthology called Peckinpah Today, New Essays on the Films of Sam Peckinpah. And as is usually the case, people asked me to contribute to one of these things. And I was busy on a film, and I was teaching, and I just didn't want to do it. I didn't want to write anything. And Finally, you know, I said, all right, I'll tell you what, I'll write an essay on how I came to prepare the special edition of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. And he says, fantastic, great, wonderful, go ahead and do it. So I wrote that essay, and the title of the essay is called The Authentic Death and Contentious Afterlife of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, um, the versions of Peckinpah's last Western film. Um, Well, the essay turned out to be 26,000 words long. And when I was done with it, famous last words, <laughs> you know, this might make a small book. <laughs> well, 150,000 additional words and five years later, here is the book. <laughs> so, and, you know, when I got around then to, um, when I got around then to, to thinking about the kind of book it would be, I knew that the, that the, original essay would be part two, the versions of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Well, where do I go from there? Well, you know, you, since I talked about how it came out, where did it come from? And, you know, and I discovered that, a very interesting kind of thing, that it was possible to draw almost a direct line from Garrett's book to Peck and Pa's film. And so then it just fell logically into place. You know, Garrett's book... You, you go to Charles Nider's novel, you go to Peckinpah's screenplay, you go to Wurlitzer's screenplay, then the Peckinpah's changes, and you're up to the versions of the film. Uh, and, you know, it, it then became, among other things, a real... Uh, I mean, one of the things I'm proudest of, I think, with all of my books, and, and this one in particular, is that in addition to, I think, being a, a pretty damn good piece of film criticism... But it's also a work of real scholarship that contributes to the, bo- the collective body of knowledge about Peckinpah and about film, you know, film in general. I mean, nobody before this had ever written 
in any kind of length or detail about Peckinpah's Pat Garrett or about his Henry Jones screenplay, and that's a very important screenplay in his own work. And then nobody had ever written in detail about Rudolf Wurlitzer's original screenplay before he and Peckinpah made the changes. And that became a very interesting um, uh, piece to explore as it relates to the finished film. Right. And then when I was done with those two things, I realized that I, you know, I had a whole number of things, Joel, that I wanted to say about. I knew I was going to have to write a closing section. Right. And I, you know, and I had several things that I wanted to say about Peckinpah in this film, but I, several of them, some about half of them had already been written, and I couldn't figure out where to put them in the book. And then I thought, you know, and I didn't want to have to think of how to write a structured essay to do to get them all in. So I was going to call it notes and this and that and the other. And then, for some reason, Wallace Stevens' poem, 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird, popped into my head. And I thought, okay, yes, there it is. And so I, I, I eventually came up with 10 Ways of Looking at an Unfinished Masterpiece and its director. And when I wrote them all and got them in, I mean, that part of the writing went remarkably fast. Um, Partly because I had a lot of it already written, it was just I I didn't know what I was going to do with it. It turned out that the thing finally had that, that last part has a real direction and structure, and it resolves the entire, you know, it resolves the entire book. Because among other things, I discovered that you know, I, I, just, I, I was able to show how Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, without his quite intending it beforehand, becomes, I don't want to say the logical, because if Peck and Pie had ended, he could conceivably have made a few more or several more Westerns that would have carried on the line. But this was certainly a logical um, resolution climax, if you will, or ending to his work in the Western, you know, because you, you, you go from the realism of his early television work, you know, to the, and Major Dundee and all that, to the mythic aspects of the Wild Bunch, and then you come into this, this film, which is anti-heroic and almost anti-mythic with a vengeance. Well, I think that last section... I think you've got it right in the sense that the fir- your first two parts had very specific points that you were trying to make. One was the story and where it came from and how it was developed and how it got to the point of finally being made a film. The second part was the filmmaking part and what happened to it. But there were many points that didn't necessarily fit always into those other structures, but this last section where you get a chance to talk a little bit about, for example, Peck and Paw's views of Westerns and their importance and, and, and realism and whether accuracy and film and those kind of issues. So it makes for a much, it, it does give a nice ending to the book as far as being able to present these points. And you can clearly see in reading the points how they fit back into the material you brought into the first two parts of the book. Yeah, thank you. I wish I could say that I consciously thought that and mapped out the whole thing in advance, but I, I, I really didn't. It's only that, you know, I, I am a great believer in how the unconscious works. You know, I'm, I'm fond of saying, you know, when people ask me who should have the final cut of a film, and I say, well, you know, in, insofar as it devolves to a single person, I really do think it should be the director. But the truthful answer is that if you're making a movie with any sort of life in it, after a while, it's going to begin to tell you how it wants to be cut. And it's your job as a filmmaker to listen to that voice, um, to get out of the way and just listen. And I, I personally happen to think that's true in almost any kind of creative work. It's it's not that it's all instinct. It's far from all instinct. You are guiding it and so forth. But nobody who's done anything creative that's been any good has not had that experience of, wow, whatever it is, now it's clicking and and this is where it's taking me and and I'm going to go there. And so 
and, and I, I, what you just said there, I'm, I'm very pleased that you put it better than I can, but the, 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 it, that last part of it does, in fact, expand on the whole book. It gives it a larger context, and it resolves a good many of the thematic elements in it, from Peckinpah's reputation to to how history really functions in it and how it is its own common on history to, you know, the very end of it, which is perhaps the thing I'm proudest, <laughs> proudest of, you know, when, when Don Hyde told me that when Sam, Sam watched it with him and a few other people in Montana in 1980, and he said, there, that's what I was trying to do in The Wild Bunch and didn't succeed. And I wrote that chapter, and without even realizing what I was doing, I wrote the last two paragraphs, with ending with there, he succeeded, and I thought, wow, there's your book. <laughs> of course, we're, we're in an age now where revising and changing films has just become the norm anymore, where there are some films that have had so many different versions, and yet the Peck and your examples... It was a great one of the things I liked the most about the book is that it does show why and it and it talks about the filmmaking in a very detailed way to try to explain why changes were made or why it was done the first place and and some of the issues and that's one of the reasons that the book works so well to me is that it, it talks about these various versions and and why there what the differences were and, and how you and other people who were involved in in the later versions approached what they were doing as i say there is just so many films anymore that you see so many different versions of them, and yet sometimes you wonder what's the purpose. Your book did a good job, and to me, of of explaining why there were so many, you know, why the different versions and how they developed and how they happened. And unfortunately, in this particular case, how Peckinpah unfortunately wasn't able to bring what he wanted out completely. Well, I, yes, I think. I mean, I do think that is finally Sam's film. And his, and it certainly is his vision, and we're all working to kind of realize that as as, as best people we can. But I, I'm glad to hear you say say what you said because my purpose in that, particularly in that second section, and also in the last chapters five and six of the previous section of part one, were it was kind of to take us into the editing room or into into or at the typewriter and as i say in the front of the book you know my my what i wanted to do here is to concentrate on everybody's strategies their functions their ideas as storytellers i mean and the thing is, yes, you do often talk about, well, this is what I have in mind, or this is what it's about. But the reality is that, you know, when you're making a film, you're most of the time talking about story and drama, and you are; those are the problems you're trying to solve. And it's not that you don't care what it's about, but you know, I don't think artists tend to think in terms of themes or ideas as, as such, and often when they do, that's often to the detriment of story because then you run the risk of being didactic. Um, and, you know, what I was trying to show in, in this film, how with the editing or with the, um, uh, or the, with the, 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 the telling, the, the writing of the screenplay and all that, where they were going in terms of just the story they were trying to tell and how that conditions everything. And I've, I've had people tell me that, that they find it a fairly persuasive, convincing um, indication or a picture of what goes on in editing rooms. I mean, as I, I say at the beginning, I mean, this is very, I mean, few films are this contentious, but this is basically a difference in degree, not fundamentally in kind of, of what goes on in, in cutting rooms. And most of the time, studios aren't this horrible to an artist, but then most of the time, an artist is not this uncooperative either. Right. <laughs> so, and then by the time I got to the end, then I could, I could talk more about what, 
you know, how, what I think the implications of this is for theme or Peckinpah's career or the overall arc of his vision. Plus, the other thing I was really cognizant of is that I did not want to repeat what I wrote in, I mean, I, I wrote at length about Cap, Pat Garrett in both editions of, of my, my critical studies of Peckinpah's Western films, and there's where I deal with stuff like, you know, close viewing and formal analysis and thematic discussion and, and all this and that and interpretation. And one of the things I'm very proud of is I, I doubt that there's 5% of, of, of overlap between the two books. Uh, or the three among the three books, if you will, and I'm I'm very proud of that. Well, the other thing that I think the book does a good job of explaining is on a, on an overall filmmaking level is the concepts, as you mentioned right at the beginning when we first started to talk of the importance of editing, and I think the average film viewer, somebody who's not necessarily paying close attention all the time. They don't completely understand that concept. They know they can react well sometimes to good or bad editing, but they don't understand why. And one of the good things, because you're an editor, you're able to bring that information into your writing. And I think that part of it alone made it a, a very educational experience, to use a bad word. You read a book to get educated. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong. I don't mind. I don't mind uh entertaining pedagogy. That's the way I try to make my classes as well. But no, it, it's true. And, you know, you, you ask about my editing and my scholarship or my academic, uh, uh, how all of that goes together. But obviously, you know, th- I could not have written this book 30 years ago. I mean, th- this book could only have been written as a consequence, you know, of my 25, 30 years experiences as a working editor and also, you know, as an as an academic with the background in in theory and and film criticism and, and artistic criticism and, and and that sort of thing. I mean so it, it, it all kind of fit here plus, you know, my training in research and, 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 and that kind of thing because I obviously I there's a lot of the research that I just enjoy doing in in, in, in this book. I mean, the, 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 the chapter two, which is on Garrett's book, it probably doesn't have to be as detailed as it does about aspects of the history, but I found it very interesting myself, and I thought readers probably would too. And, and it turns out I've been very, it's, been, it's been very gratifying that it, that it has been praised by some serious Billy the Kid scholars and historians. I mean, uh, obviously Mark Lee Gardner, who just helped me so much on on just pointing me in directions of information and so forth. But Bob Bowes Bell, who wrote a wonderful book on on Billy the Kid called The Illustrated Life and Times of Billy the Kid, and they're excerpting a piece in in True West magazine or uh, True West magazine um, next month, I think it is. And uh, but he he wrote me and he Bob Bosbell wrote me and he said that he really liked my take on on the uh, on the on the legend and the history and so I, I'm very proud about that. Plus I do think going into that detail in that part of the chapter because there's so much disagreement about what exactly even happened <laughs> with certain major incidents in the lives of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid that that that. that that is kind of a mirror, or a pre-mirror, if you will, on, on the contentiousness of what went on on Pat Garrett and Billy right. the Kid. No matter where you look at this, where you look at this story, you, you have you have, let's say, most of the time, well well-meaning, well-intended people who are just at loggerheads as to what the truth is or what the right way to proceed is. Yeah, I suspect your your work in that early chapter has a lot to do. A lot of that came from your literature background. I, you know, looking at sources and that kind of thing. I suspect helped you a long way in order to develop such a a well rounded way of looking at the the source information that 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 became part of uh, Peck and Paw's work with this film. Yeah, well, I, I will confess that this is something. I mean, this this kind of, if you will, literary artistic 
detective work, that's something that I just happen to be very, very interested in, in, in where things, you know, where things come from, how artists, how artists take from one another or influence one another and, and so forth. And it, it's far more pervasive in, in, in the, in the history of all the arts than you, than you may think. I mean, a, a, a fabulous music critic and also artist, pianist, who died just not long ago, Charles Rosen, I mean, whose, whose work I just love. I mean, he was one of my big influences in, in, in this regard. I mean, his writings on Beethoven and Mozart and Haydn and, and all the romantic um, right, all the romantic composers, and he, he, he shows you a lot about how they, they took this and, you know, they used Beethoven as a model for this, or Beethoven used Mozart as a model for that, and it, it, it gives you a whole new take on what originality is all about, um, you know, and, and Peckinpah was, Peckinpah was often very self-conscious, uh, very aware of what of, of what he took or the illusions. Like, there is no doubt in my mind that the end of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid with the boy picking up the stones and throwing it at, at uh, I mean, I was the first one, so far as I know, among any critics to, to, to notice this and make it explicit in, in the first edition of my book. But there's no question in my mind that he is, that he is thinking of the of the end of the movie Shane, and he is expecting us to, you know, he, he's he's expecting us to 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 pick up the illusion, um, and and to to realize how this is different from that, where you have the boy in that film saying, "Come back, Shane, come back," and here you have the boy in this film who's killed his, uh, the, the sheriff's killed his hero, Billy the Kid, and he's throwing stones at Garrett's horse to send him away faster. Well, I, I have to tell you, um, for a film that I hadn't seen before, I read your book. In fact, I still haven't seen it. Now I'm going to see it because I think, and I hope other people do just from listening to you talk about your book, I mean, about the book and about the filmmaking. It's it. It was a fascinating book, and I think uh, you did a great job of explaining what you you know the the, the filmmaking aspect and and also Peck and Paw's uh, artistry came out quite well in your book. And I really wanted to appreciate to to thank you for joining with me and talking with me today and giving me such a great overview of such an important filmmaker. And I hope that people read your book and seek out the films, the different versions that they have access to, just so they can see more what you talked about in the book. Well, thank, thank you for, for asking me, Joel, and it's been my great pleasure. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed my talk with Paul Sedor. His book definitely shows why Peck and Paw is so important in film history. This is Joel Cherney. And I will be back soon with more new books in film.